I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is a wonderful, wonderful human being, Dr. Rupi Aujla. Now let me try those titles. Maybe you will get them because I definitely don't. MBBS, BSC, MRCGP in an NHS GP working in emergency medicine. Basically, Dr. Rupi spends his day in saving lives in emergency medical centers of the National Health Services in the UK. But I believe he also saves many lives in his other role as the founder of the Doctor's Kitchen, in which he inspires and educates everyone about the beauty of food, but also the medical benefits of eating well. He creates very delicious recipes and he delivers them in such a fun way. And he does the clinical research behind them and shares across the media platforms on Instagram and YouTube and so on. He is a Sunday Times selling author with two books and one coming on the way, The Doctor's Kitchen, Eat to Beat Illness and Doctor's Kitchen 3 to 1. He's also a star on many, many TV shows, definitely not just because of the knowledge he brings, but because of his wonderful personality. Without further ado, I'll take you to the Instagram live recording that I did with my dear friend, Dr. Rupi. Oh man, I was just talking about you behind your back in front of, oh, you were on the call. Did you hear me say what I said about you? No, 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 no. Good, 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 <laughs> good, good, good. It's so good to see you, Rupi. Thank you so much for joining. This is exciting for me. Yeah, Yo, it's exciting for me. I've been following your work for a little while now. So honestly, the pleasure is all mine. Oh my God. I mean, look, I have to start by saying I rarely ever, ever, ever swipe on Instagram. Like it is one of my religious beliefs, if you want. I will not waste my time swiping on your Instagram. I don't ever get enough from your page. It's like, it's incredible. I and I have no idea what to expect every time. And I'm like a little child going like, I'm going to cook this. I'm going to cook this. Oh my God, that's so nice. You know, it's really, really so cool. So I'm a huge fan. Love having you here. I appreciate that, man. Honestly, that's so nice to hear. And that's kind of the reason why I started it to inspire creativity, to inspire people to like think about food and in a way that isn't just about restrictive health goals. It's about enjoying the flavors and being inspired by the colors as well. So that, that's great to hear, man. I love that. I love that. But also, I have to say for the two people of the thousands that will be listening to us who don't know you, so Rupi is a medical doctor. You're a practitioner. So you're a GP. You're actually practice. He's a fantastic chef. He is a best-selling author, a podcast host, and what else? And, uh, and a lot of charity works. And I want to talk about every single one of those. But I first think people should know a little bit about, I mean, when you really think about it, you must be the only one of you in the world. Like, I don't think they made that model again. It's like, okay, let's try it with Rupi. It seems to be working, but let's not make another one. He's doing well enough, right? So how did you end up being here? You know, I mean, why study medicine if you have so, so many other talents? Why would you continue to practice when you have such a big, impactful franchise? I mean, you know, your work is not about 
silly stuff. You're actually making us healthier and happier. So how did you end up there? Yeah, I mean, it's a a really good question, Mo. And I'm actually trying to ask myself these questions as I go along, because like you said, I I still practice. So I'm trained as a general practitioner and I work in A&E. And I think what keeps me working in medicine and having that one-to-one contact is it's incredibly humbling. And it makes me so grateful to have the opportunity to deal with people in their most vulnerable state. It's a privilege that I'm so grateful for every time I go and work in clinic or work in hospital. And that's something that's quite humbling as well. And it just keeps me on the straight and narrow because I feel that even though the work that I do with the Doctor's Kitchen and the podcast and culinary medicine and all the nonprofit stuff, that's at scale. The other stuff that the very like... um, the intuitive stuff, the very humble stuff. I think it's really important to just make sure I'm maintaining a grounded perspective on things. But I guess to answer your question as to how I got into this, like I went to medical school. I've been a doctor now for about 11 years. And throughout medical school, I've always been into cooking and cooking delicious food. But uh, I got ill myself and I became a patient myself three months after qualifying as a doctor back in 2009. And it was my journey of becoming a patient myself, having something called atrial fibrillation, which for the listeners and and viewers is cardiac condition where your heart beats exceptionally fast, and in my case, irregularly. And I went through the journey of medications, procedures, being offered surgery, and then my mom saying to me, you need to look at your diet and your lifestyle before you start going down more extreme interventions. And long story short, after doing a bit of research into nutrition and lifestyle, I was able to overcome my condition. And so me doing all this kind of stuff is like, I'm a doctor and I didn't know anything about nutrition and I'm still learning now. So for me to not know, no one else is going to be in that situation where they have the opportunity to go and dive into the literature and actually make changes themselves. So I really want to democratize nutrition and lifestyle medicine to as many people as possible. And that's kind of how the doctor's kitchen came about. This actually is a very sensitive conversation because you know that there are always those two worlds, the world of, if you want the Western medicine, which, you know, is all about, we're going to fix it when it goes wrong. You know, we may need to change a few spare parts and things will be fine. But then there is that entire other side of it, which, you know, is more preventive, is more health driven, is more well-being driven is more fitness driven sometimes. And on all of that, it's rare to find one that believes in both. They're normally very competitive. It's like, we want you to go down one side or the other. So are you saying openly as a doctor that there is a lot to be done without having to go to a doctor? I think so. Absolutely. If you look at the the most pressing problems and the healthcare complaints that cost healthcare systems, particularly in the UK and the USA, they are what we deem as preventable. So ones that we can prevent with good nutrition, good lifestyle, and even offer better outcomes as well, even when we're managing those with pharmaceuticals. And the opportunity of being able to prevent those diseases, we're just not taking advantage of at the moment as medical practitioners who haven't been taught nutrition at medical school. So I'm saying absolutely, without a doubt, there is a huge opportunity for us to engage in those 
holistic systems to try and improve what we see on the front line. You know, when I see someone with a complication of type 2 diabetes, yes, as an A&E physician, I'm going to be treating that immediately. But in the back of my head, I'm always asking myself, how could we prevent something like this happening to someone else right now in five years time? And that's the kind of forward thinking that is beginning to creep into medicine right now. So I'm doing a master's in nutritional medicine and most of my colleagues are actually GPs. So there's a new sort of generation that's coming around to this idea and it's not becoming as radical as it was when I started maybe six or seven years ago doing the doctor's kitchen stuff. It's interesting when you talk about it this way, because one of my favorite books of all time is a book called Freakonomics, which basically tells you that we're more or less motivated by things that are not always the motivations we show to the world. So in an interesting way, a medical doctor, of course, they don't want to, but they they live off the fact that people get sick. And the idea of finding a lifestyle that prevents people from getting sick might actually end up meaning that medical doctors don't have to work that often. And that's actually a very interesting dilemma when you think about it. When I scroll through your fabulous online presence, wherever, by the way, it's constantly like surprising. Like, why did he say this right now? It's like, you know, so I see you and I'm trying to grasp it. So you talk about food a lot. And we definitely are going to spend a, a bit of this conversation, a good part of this conversation around food and healthy eating and so on. Do you know that feel-good section? So every now and then you have like feel-good news, feel-good story. Yeah. Why? What, what is that? What, what? <laughs> and you know, it's the cutest little stories most of the time. They're not like serious, okay, let's get grim and talk about something important. It's very, very light. Yeah. <laughs> Where does that fit in? I think that fit in earlier this year. I started sharing a lot more of these stories to inspire positivity. And it's kind of a bit of my own personality because I'm quite happy-go-lucky. I'm glass half full and I want to try and give people an easy way to kind of join me on that little journey of like, when you look through your Twitter feed right now, all you're going to be seeing is negativity. But I want at least to inspire somebody to have a positive accent on their day. And the other thing that I've been doing for the last um, few years, and I used to share it on my Instagram stories, is gratitude. And I've been practicing gratitude for years and years where I just share three things that I'm grateful for every single day. And I used to do on Instagram stories and I still do it personally, but I felt I made the decision to stop sharing it publicly about a year and a half ago because I felt I was holding back on things that I didn't want to share publicly. And so I was making up other things to share. But long story short, I feel that food is a bit of a gateway drug into lifestyle medicine. It's kind of like people can't, can get around the idea of food having nutritional benefits, medicinal benefits, something that we engage in two to three times per day. But really, it's a way of engaging people into the other aspects of lifestyle, like meditation, mindfulness, exercise, sleep hygiene, and the more abstract concepts of purpose and community that are quite hard to, to describe in a character-limited social media feed. So for me, food is like, it encompasses everything. It's an easy, tangible aspect, but really it's to try and move people along the journey towards all the other aspects that allow us to lead happy, fulfilling lives. I love your gratitude practice. I heard you once say that you spent, if I remember correctly, three years with a gratitude practice of remembering the three things you're grateful for every day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I still, that's a big, I still do it now. 
And I did it before I was sharing on social media, but I did it like nonstop for like three years. It was just about three years. It was literally just like every single day without fail, wherever I was. I was in India once. I remember I was in Sri Lanka at a wedding and conferences and I always share it no matter what, just almost amazing. for myself. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah. it's amazing what happens actually. It's amazing. Are there days where you fail? Are there days where you go like, nah, nothing grateful for today. It's like, <laughs> This is a horrendous day. I freaking hate every part of it. <laughs> That's when the gratitude exercise becomes its most useful. Honestly, those, I love those days. When I remember vividly, actually, I came back, I had a really, really bad day in A&E. And uh, it was a shocking incident and uh, a few things went wrong and, and whatever. And I just remember pulling out my phone and trying to think of things. And I was very honest on that particular moment. But after looking at things that I was grateful for, like the debrief we had with the nurses, the sandwich I had for lunch, the beautiful coffee I made sure I had that morning before I even went to work and had a horrendous day, you know, those little accents, I was like, actually, you know what? It's okay. And tomorrow's a new day and I'm alive. I'm healthy. I've got my family. There are so many things for me to be grateful for despite having a bad day. So yeah, it's, that's actually when it becomes its most useful tool. Bad days do happen. Again, I mean, you and I, for some reason, I don't know if you get that, but sometimes I get attacked sometimes for like talking about happiness and well-being and positivity and trying to see the glass half full during such difficult times. So it is important also to recognize that people are, are suffering. There is a lot, a lot of challenge out there. And so what do you think about that? I mean, have you, first of all, have you been personally negatively impacted and like crying in a corner before they start shooting you for a, a clip or you know have you actually found joy in, in the lockdown yeah and what would you tell people about the lockdown and the current situation you know it's really interesting you say this because um i remember i was having a chat with my girlfriend at the start of the year and she was having a really tough time and i was seeing the positive elements of everything <laughs> It's a brain defect. It's a brain defect. I enjoy that very much. It's like, I, I just, there is always a good side. You yeah, know? It's like exactly. You can see it. And you're right. It can be very triggering for people who don't see it your way. And fair play to a lot of people. They are going through really tough times. I hear heart-wrenching stories. Every time I'm in a &E, I always get a story of the impact of non-COVID related issues. So people who not only furloughed or lost their jobs, but people who their houses are falling apart. They can't get people to come in. They can't contact the council, all these things that we take for granted. And that actually makes me feel even wealthier and even more privileged because, you know, I don't have those issues. And that's why my gratitude almost goes yeah, up and absolutely. up. Absolutely. And, and that's why yeah. I almost continue to do my work in clinical practice because selfishly, it kind of helps me see my life is like amazing, even though, you know, it's not like I'm a millionaire or anything like that. It's just, I feel so privileged. And, and on the negativity piece, I think it's um, a really interesting facet of social media, which reflects a lot of people's emotions. And I think people can do it quite facelessly. So I've been attacked at various points throughout my whole social media journey over the last five years for various issues. You can't say food is medicine. You're telling people that they can cure cancer with vegetables, you know, complete purposeful misinterpretation of what a practicing medical doctor is talking about. And what I see it is as a vulnerability 
that people are expressing through hate. And instead of reacting to that, what I've learned to do is actually try and empathize as much as possible and see those kind of people as quite vulnerable in themselves and upset about something. And they're expressing that through hatred online. And unfortunately, as you know, more than anyone, we're seeing a lot more levels of unhappiness, a lot more levels of loneliness. And with that, you're going to get more levels of that kind of behavior online on the biggest platforms that we have. So it's kind of to be expected, but I've kind of learned some coping mechanisms. And all I can do is try and inspire one person at a time to eat healthier every day and take a more positive perspective on life. In my personal view, actually, I call this the golden age of empathy. You know, the reality of what you just said, it's like you have to expect that people are going to be going through tough times, right? And when you feel that someone is going through a tough time, you can easily relate to yourself. I mean, even the happiest of us, even the ones that have been meditating for 40 years and like Zen, like a little pebble, at the end of the day, they still get worried, they get anxious. And I think that idea of trying to see others as we're in the same place here, we're in, you know, it's quite a positive way of looking at it. I was just going to say, in the interest of uh, vulnerability and actually just being as honest as possible, I still have days where I feel like everything's going against me. I have arguments with my partner. I have arguments with my family. I can be obstructive. I can be an idiot. I can regret things and stuff, but it's how you work through those and you react and actually take ownership of your mistakes because we all make mistakes. And I think especially from the social media perspective, we only post things in a positive light that shine on ourselves. So everything in my feed, for example, is you know positive energy and all that kind of stuff. So that's why I try and mix it up by showing some sweets that I've eaten today, or I talk about something that I did incorrectly, or you know I post about days where I'm not 100%, just to give people permission to feel low at some points, because it's not, I would love to be, Uh, that level of contentment, like proper Zen, Buddha, nothing kind of touches me, but I'm far, far lower in the process towards that. (laughs) Oh, let us be the judge of that. (laughs) Uh, So I, I rarely ever in my life, I mean, if I ask you to narrow down your favorite songs, right? And I say, what's your single favorite song in the world? It's normally very difficult. Do you know what's your favorite song in the world? No, I I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I can tell you a selection, but yeah. I actually know my favorite, my single favorite post from you ever. Oh, really? It's like, I, I stopped there and I said, that's it. Should I ever visit this page again? Because he can't beat this one. That's it. Which was the one when you said, unfollow me. Ah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Man, that was awesome. Why? Why would you tell me to unfollow you? I'm so glad you brought that up. It comes from two perspectives. One I feel that the expectation for being an influencer and a marker of success is the number of likes, engagements, and follows that you get. And I wanted to make a public stand and say, that's not right. So whoever is on 1,000 followers or 2,000 followers and trying to make a big difference in the world, you don't need to think of an arbitrary number in your head to attain to have a grand impact on the world. You can make micro interactions and you can still be the best person and don't put all your energy onto social media, put it in the real world. And the Mm. second thing is, 
is the kind of content that I put out there, and this is the more serious aspect, the kind of content that I put out there might not be applicable to everyone who comes into contact with. And I realized I can't be the filter for other people. People need to be the filter for the content that they consume themselves. As a content creator, I literally have a megaphone and it goes out everywhere. And people listening to that need to filter as to whether it's useful for them or not, because there are a lot of people who have an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, and that's not good. And I, I've seen that first. No, no, hold on, hold on. What does that mean? An unhealthy obsession with healthy? What is that? So it's basically a type of eating disorder that has become a lot more sort of known in the medical literature over the last 10 years. So it, it's in that spectrum that includes things like anorexia, bulimia, and then a number of other eating disorders. Orthorexia is a genuine over-conscious interest in healthy eating when it can actually develop into something like weight loss, extreme levels of anxiety about body dysmorphia, and it can be fueled by some things that you see online. So if me as a healthy eating advocate is talking about healthy eating all the time, and somebody who is already in that inclination sees that they might spiral from guilt into shame and that shame spiral is not useful for them and if i'm always talking about you know healthy eating get your vegetables and colors and fats and fibers and all this kind of stuff it might not be useful for them so that's when i put that video out there really to make sure that i'm making a stand and i will regularly actually post this actually about how people shouldn't follow me if they fit that criteria and I think everyone who's responsible, particularly in the nutrition world, should really go towards that way of thinking because there are, it's very hard to filter uh, and we have to encourage people to do that. I don't know why when I saw that post from you, the devilish little kid inside me was like, okay, I'm going to share this with all my followers and tell them to follow you. Oh. I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to get him. It was like, this guy needs to be followed. This is what needs to happen. <laughs> I mean, I, I disagree with what you're saying. Let's stay on this idea. Yeah. Stay on the idea of that constant blindness that we get through with social media. And I think, of course, toxic positivity is a big part of that. And the idea of us constantly trying to appear as everything is okay all the time. So I see you every now and then talking about things that are maybe not great every now and then. But I also know you're a Gemini, so there must be a little devil there, in there somewhere. So what's the dark side? The dark side for me? <laughs> um, I think uh, I'm really obsessive about things, I think. Not in a clinical way, but in a subclinical way that leads me to become quite introverted and dismissive of other people's needs. I'm looking at this Ooh. from the lens of my relationship with my parents, my partner and everything else. And I feel that I can be quite self-engaged and self-motivated and ignoring other people's feelings sometimes. And I try to work through that and rectify it, but it's definitely something that I need to work on. And I think to your point about toxic positivity, I need to almost check my own positivity sometimes because not everyone has the privilege or the environment that I've cultivated for myself where I can revel and be happy no matter what the situation is at this point in time anyway. And I think it goes back to a lot of what 
you talk about and you've inspired me to think through actually ever since i saw that interview i saw it live actually on channel four the interview that you did around the publication of your book about perception versus expectation of happiness and my perceptions of happiness and my expectation of life is just so aligned these days but not everyone is there like i have a colleague of mine who's um recently failed her exams and it's literally like the worst thing that could have ever happened to her and for me to try and advise her to work through that, I don't think I come at it from the right perspective because I assume a level of yeah. rationality that isn't something that is ubiquitous across people's mindsets. So sometimes I think I need to check myself in that regard. So th there's definitely a few dark sides to me. Oh, yeah. Just so that you know, a lot of the comments that are coming are basically saying, no, 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 your positivity is a light in dark times. Please don't stop. <laughs> We also had another comment, by the way, I'm just conveying what people are saying here, which said all of your interviews should be shirtless. Uh, so I, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how willing you are to, you know, to accommodate your fans, but uh, it is an interesting request. And I'm glad that this didn't come to me. So, or maybe not so glad. I'm not sure. So let's talk about food, Rupi. Yeah. So we hear a lot of advice. Okay. Like everyone. Everyone has a view. For example, I love to live a vegetarian life. It's my absolute favorite way of living. And for years, I got personal trainers, medical doctors telling me, no, 70 grams of protein. You can't live without the protein. You will lose muscle mass. And I forced myself for a while to eat protein and I freaking hated yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And then you get those who say keto diets and others that will say 100 million views, Okay. So what is the answer? You know, if we, if, if we were to give you the mic and say all of them are wrong, I know this stuff. Yeah. What is the answer? So the answer is it's personal. We are so unique as complex human beings to suggest that there is a one size fits all diet for every single human on the planet. It just doesn't make any sense at all. So really we need to give people principles of how to eat and to remind people that it's not as binary. It's not like you're taking a pill every single day. It's the cumulative impact of your diet over time. So if you were to have a donut today, it's not going to adversely impact your life or your body to the point where everything for the next week is ruined. No, it doesn't work like that. So I think those kind of mindsets are really important to get through. But if I could crystallize healthy eating in a few principles, it would be lots of fiber, quality fats, that's nuts, seeds, and some quality oils as well, mostly plants, lots of fiber, and eating whole. Those are the five core principles. And if you really want to go a little bit further, we can talk about eating in time, which is a general 11-hour window where you eat all your food and you, you fast outside of that window. But the reason why I talk about principles is that you can map principles on top of any cuisine that you like, whether you're Korean, Middle Eastern, you're Egyptian, American, whatever your cultural background is or your preferred cuisine, you can eat that. Because I think when people say you've got to eat Mediterranean, people think you have to eat Mediterranean flavored food. And Mediterranean flavored food is delicious, don't get me wrong. But I wouldn't be able to suggest that to my Indian patients or my Chinese patients or my Middle Eastern patients. So I have to make it approachable for them. 
And something I, I wrote about in my second book, Eat to Be Illness, were the principles of eating for your brain, for mental health, for immune support, for a number of different attributes of health. But the final chapter brought it all together. And this is the kicker. Everything is the same. So whether you're eating for your skin, your immune health, your brain health, all the principles are the same. When you look at nutritional science and nutritional medicine papers, it's all pointing towards those five principles. Lots of fiber, mostly plants, lots of colors, quality fats, eating in time, eating whole. And so really it's about putting your body in the best environment for health to thrive. And it's this concept of salutogenesis. I don't know if you've talked about that before, but I'm obsessed with this concept of it's almost like just putting your body in the right environment and it will look after itself. If you give it the right fuel, it will look after itself because we are innately fine-tuned toward health in the same way we are innately fine-tuned to happiness and being content. That's like our, our normal state. Can you explain this a little more? So what is that right environment? How can I put my body in the right environment? So I would suggest a plant-focused diet. So that's basically where 80 to 90% of your diet is mostly plants. 80 to 90 by calorie count? No, no, by uh, literally just the amount on your plate. <laughs> okay. So it's oh. uh, the calorie counting phenomena I actually don't agree with because I think it's a bit of an arbitrary measure of the food. It purely looks at energy count rather than nutrient density. And actually in today's day and age, we're not really, we're not getting enough nutrients in our diet and we have a too far focused impact on calorie counting. Calorie counts for weight loss, absolutely. If you do a calorie-restricted diet, you will 100% lose weight. But whether you lose weight in a healthy way or an unhealthy way, a calorie-restricted diet will not tell you that. It will just look at the energy inputs. And I don't think that's a useful measure for most people. Most people need to count colors rather than, than calories. Interesting. And so plants are a really good way of ensuring you're getting plenty of fiber and you're getting plenty of variety of nutrients. And the other way I like to describe healthy eating is through the perspective of not what you feel that you need, but what your microbes need. So your microbiota is this population of microbes, mostly bacteria living in your large intestine, but it also includes the virome nematodes, fungi, you know, all these do exist and they exist in a symbiotic relationship with our bodies in that they digest food, they release micronutrients, they create neurotransmitters, they balance inflammation, they regulate sugar control. It is absolutely inseparable from health. Your microbiota is one of the most important things. So if you can think about eating through the perspective of nurturing your microbes, that is perhaps the best way you can think about things. So it's less about selfish eating and more about eating for your microbes. So plants, diversity. <laughs> I didn't think I was supposed to like those guys. I mean, especially the fun guy. I mean, like, why would I like those people? You're saying I eat for them. So the only thing that comes to mind would be some kind of probiotic, right? What else would be a healthy food for my, the rest of me, basically, the others? Probiotics are fantastic, but the main thing that people lack in our diets when you look at population studies is fiber. So fiber and different types of fiber that you get from asparagus, broccoli, beans, lentils, legumes, nuts, seeds, all those sorts of foods we are really lacking in our diets. And that fiber provides the fuel for your microbes to flourish. 
And actually, when we think about probiotic foods, traditionally all cultures have fermented food, right? So there's pickles, there's kefir, there's tartar sauce, there's a whole bunch of different foods. Every cuisine has got fermented food. And that's great for introducing microbes. But really the main thing with people is diversity of fiber and getting enough fiber in. And actually uh, there's been some really interesting research looking at dietary interventions for people with mental health issues. There was one small one in Australia called the SMILES trial. And they actually put people on a high fiber diet with lots of whole grains. And they demonstrated a positive impact on uh, mental health outcomes with some people actually lessening their pharmaceuticals as well. So really, really interesting field of nutritional psychiatry is increasing fiber. And where does chocolate fit into all of this? Because I didn't hear you say chocolate and we had a comment asking about that important, very important nutritional addition to our life. Definitely. I mean, dark chocolate is fantastic. <laughs> oh, come on, come on, come on. Make it easy for me. Chocolate ice cream on top of a donut with a tiny bit of like, uh, no, no, that doesn't work. I mean, you know, every now and then, I think having something that reminds you of when you were a kid or just some relaxation, you can't separate the intangible benefits of food from the functional benefits. There is something so comforting about me having a meal that my mum's cooked and it might not be the healthiest and she's a great cook. And if she's listening, I'm not doubting that. But there are some things that are unhealthy that feed our soul. And it's about getting that balance right. So dark chocolate, fantastic, over 80%. There's lots of uh, benefits in terms of magnesium, GABA, flavonoids as well that have been shown to lower blood pressure. But the bog standard chocolate that you tend to get in supermarkets, (laughs) probably not the best thing to have every day, no. I was wishing you would say yes. Okay, counting colors, I think is really, really interesting for me. So what do you mean by that? So in practical terms, In practical terms, I advise people to get three portions of vegetables at every mealtime. Now, I know that sounds really unattainable, but three portions at every meal means that you're going to get nine to 10 every day. And that's been demonstrated by some Imperial College researchers in 2019, I think it was, to be the optimal amount of intake in terms of variety of vegetables that provide a number of benefits and they have an inverse relationship with a number of different lifestyle related illnesses. So counting colors, it can be onions, greens, spinach, any different sort of color, because those are indicative of not only micronutrients that we're typically familiar with, vitamins and minerals, but also phytonutrients, which are the thousands of chemicals that we contain in plants that have benefits to our immune system, benefits to inflammation balancing, a number of different benefits that we haven't even discovered yet. So resveratrol, quercetin, allicin, sulforaphane, these are just a few of thousands of different chemicals that have been demonstrated to have benefits to the human body. And you're advising that we don't always cook those, but sometimes eat them whole, right? Yeah. So eating whole actually refers more to having minimal processing. So instead of having peeled potatoes, try potatoes steamed with the skins on because the skins have a lot of fiber and actually the nutrients are concentrated in the skins as well. And then also the type of cooking technique. So instead of having boiled broccoli, you might want to steam the broccoli because it makes the nutrients a little bit more bioavailable and you're not washing away a lot of the nutrition in the water as well. So little things like that can actually help maintain the nutritional value. I'm definitely not 
someone who suggests a raw diet because some degree of processing actually increases the absorption of nutrients that you find in all the different plants. Yeah. So whether it's cooking tomatoes that actually increases the lycopene or lightly steaming your rocket leaves, those sorts of things can actually help. Wow. Having some like raw foods where you maintain a lot of the vitamin C is advisable. Well, I mean, I can go on forever and I will, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I actually am a huge fan and I really recommend that you follow the doctor's kitchen. I think all of that is shared very frequently uh, with a lot of wonderful recipes and really, really lots of good ideas. So Rupi, the obsession with fat-free foods, you're saying, did you call them quality fats? Yeah, yeah, quality fats. But we're constantly told that fat is not good for you. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's one of those myths in nutritional science that kind of refuses to go away. And it's it's unfortunate because it affects a lot of the patient population that I see that perhaps don't read the well-being articles or you know are not interested in this space. And they have this idea that anything with fat is going to be bad for you. The reality is we as human beings need fat in our diet, but it's the type of fat that we want. So The typical thought of people when they think of fat are burgers and chips and pizza and all that kind of stuff. Actually, the (laughs) the majority (laughs) of that stuff is refined flour, which is very high in sugar. And it has the fried foods, the poor quality oils, the Mm -mm. meat that's been taken to a very high temperature. So the quality fats, things like nuts, seeds and oil that's been used and created through a compression mechanism rather than taken to a very high temperature where the rancidity sits in those are the types of fats that have actually been demonstrated to have cardioprotective oh. abilities so so actually we need a lot more and the other thing is that vitamins particularly a d e and k those are fat soluble so you need to have a fat for those vitamins to be absorbed in the human body. Otherwise, which it it doesn't get absorbed and we pass it. So fats are exceptionally important and and more people need to realize that. That is so eye-opening. So I I didn't have a copy of 321 yet, so I'm going to ask you about it because your first two books were incredibly successful. You're a bestseller. What is 321 about? Well, first of all, I haven't even got a copy myself. So, so <laughs> exactly. I haven't, I haven't had a guess. Everything's been so delayed this year, but... Um, it's out end of the year is what I understand, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. December 31st. Yeah, yeah. But is, is it available for pre-order now? People can find yes. copies? Good. I'm hinting here. <laughs> You're doing a great job, Mo. You should be my PR guy. <laughs> I am your PR guy today. <laughs> no, I love your work. And I actually never, ever, ever, ever recommend anything in my channels that I haven't tried myself or love myself. And I think if I recommend it to my friends, I think that's a good thing, right? I love that. Definitely. I, th- I think that's the most honest, genuine recommendation that I could get from anyone. And I truly believe in this book. So the first couple of books were like a foodie's journey through food and medicine. I talk about everything, nutrigenomics, the microbiota, all this stuff. 321 is all about process. 321 is all about how do I get people like yourself and my colleagues and my friends to eat well every single day. And so 321 is my formula, if you like. It's three portions of fruit and vegetables per person, two servings per recipe, and only using one pan. So all the recipes are streamlined to only use one cooking vessel 
and you can make stews, curries, casseroles, tray bakes, everything from it, and lots of different cuisines. So there's full madame. I know you like full madame. There's uh, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> there's Singapore noodles, there's Sri Lankan curry, there's some of my other recipes that I absolutely love. And it's really about gradually increasing fruit and vegetable consumption because if there's one thing I could change in people's diet, it's just increasing fruit and vegetables. That's it. That's the only thing I want to change because that will have such a shift in people's health goals and health parameters. It's pretty remarkable what the data shows. So. Does your partner appreciate the fact that you're at home cooking or do you not cook for her? Oh, I cook a lot. I cook a lot for her. She's very lucky. We need to ask her for confirmation. She needs to sign on to that video and say, yes, I like what he cooks. And so the idea of the process here is to really simplify the process in a way that we can, you give us a lot of recipes, but you know, at the end of it, we'd know enough to sort of improvise within the same process as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So like when I create a curry, I will create the base flavor. I will add the onions and ginger and garlic. And then I'll add the other foundation, which might be a coconut base or a tomato base or a stock base. And then I'll add the vegetables on top of that. And so you can create a number of different dishes just from learning that formula. And then if you uh -huh. always have in your mind, three, two, one, you can create meals. If you're living on your own, you can create a meal for dinner tonight and then lunch the next day. Or if you're cooking for a family, you just double the ingredients and you have servings for four people. So it's getting that message across to people that it is achievable and it can actually be affordable as well. That's one of the key mm. messages, I think, right now. I have two more questions on food and then I want to talk about the topic I adore most about you. So on food, one of our listeners said, if you had one item that you want to include in every meal, what would that be? Every meal, if I could include one item, it would probably be nuts or seeds at every meal. That is so unlike what others will say. Yeah. So people will say they are too fatty. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's because they're a good source of fiber as well as fat. They are plant-based proteins. They contain magnesium and vitamin E, two things that are lacking a lot of people's diets because we don't have enough fresh vegetables. And they give, from a culinary perspective, they give texture. They give that crunch. Yeah. They give that, you know, crunch, you can yeah. toast them. You can bring out the oils. There's so much that those can give you. So most of my meals will have one of those two things in that's amazing. Okay, my core question on food, food and happiness. Sure. Can food make us happy and can it make us unhappy? I think food definitely can provide the foundation for happiness to flourish. So like I said at the start, it's kind of like creating an environment for your natural state of happiness to flourish in. And there is a lot of research now that will show us people can provide a good base for themselves for happiness and mental health to thrive. And poor food can be at the antithesis of that. So we used to think, and sorry to geek out a bit here, but we used to think that the blood-brain barrier was immunoprivileged. So our brain was distinct from our body from an inflammation point of view. There was no exchange there unless you were seriously sick. But what we know now is that systemic inflammation can cross the blood-brain barrier and can actually have neuroinflammation, which can lead to depressive symptoms. And so if you're having an inflammatory diet, which is not sufficient in vegetables, not sufficient in fiber, has got too many poor quality fats, too much sugar, 
this can have an impact on our mental health. So it's definitely not a cure-all. It's definitely not a pill, but it's certainly something I talk to people about when looking at a more holistic way of treating mental health issues. But of course, you know, we have to look at it through the lens of all the other inputs, financial insecurity, psychotherapy, pharmaceuticals if needed, you know, all these other inputs. But food is a very, very important part of the problem. I feel that as well. I mean, in an interesting way, I also, you know, in my theory, I basically say that you're only able to be happy when your basic needs for survival are met. And happiness sort of is the absence of unhappiness. So if your body is hurting you, if your stomach is not performing very well, if you feel heavy, if you feel weighed down, if you're missing certain nutritions and accordingly maybe not in your healthiest state, it's difficult. It's more difficult to find happiness when you get food to work against you and not work for you. And I think that's really important to think about sometimes. Absolutely. I, I really think so. And I think, you know, it's not really talked about enough, but I'm really, I'm in a very privileged position where I've started a nonprofit and we're actually teaching people. My favorite topic came up. I love that topic. <laughs> Tell me about the nonprofit. So yeah, we've created a, a nonprofit organization, Culinary Medicine in the UK, where we're actually teaching medical students, but we're also going to be teaching practitioners about the foundations of nutrition, but also how to cook. And the reason why is because when you're able to cook and you're able to talk about nutrition more confidently, you're going to be having much more open, honest conversations with patients in an effort to inspire them and motivate them to look after their health. And one of the really interesting things I'm doing is a few workshops is um, we're working with a psychiatric intensive care unit in the UK, in London. And for those of you who don't know, a psychiatric intensive care unit is where the sickest mental health patients go. A lot of the time, the first couple of weeks, they have quite high sedative uses and a lot of other medications, but they tend to be in an institution for a period of months. And during that time period, there is an opportunity to not only get them better from a mental health point of view, but also instill lifestyle measures that could better serve them and prevent readmission in the future. And so we're working with a few mental health nurses and uh, psychiatrists to try and instill a lifestyle uh, program there. And I have a hunch that it will be exceptionally impactful because they've already done an exercise intervention earlier this year during lockdown because they were expecting aggression to go through the roof with people not being able to go outside. But actually, the exercise regime reduced incidents of aggressiveness towards staff by an order of magnitude, I think it was around 30 to 40%, which is unprecedented. So if we combine that with nutrition, I really have a, a hunch that it could be hugely, hugely impactful. I love that. I also notice, Rupi, that a lot of the time when you do promotions with commercial enterprises, you give away a part of your profit to food poverty, you call it, right? Yeah. Which actually surprises me that a country like the UK has food poverty. I mean, it shouldn't be that way. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think that's very important for people to understand. Oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, it's quite horrific. I didn't know as much as I know about it from this year. I had no idea about the magnitude of the number of school children that were going to school hungry. There's some incredible organizations like Magic Breakfast in the UK that are providing meals for students and for families who can't afford it. But food insecurity in the UK is a huge thing. 
Pre-COVID, there were 4 million families who were relying on food banks. Post-COVID, I have no idea how many that is. But if you consider the population of the UK being over 70 million, that is a massive amount considering we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. So one of the things that I, I try and do with any sort of commercial tag that I do, whether it be a meal box, whether it be... I don't know, all the stuff that I'm doing in my own digital application that's coming out next year. There is a proportion of funds that will go towards directly supporting initiatives that I truly believe in. So one of them is UK Harvest. Another is uh, Fair Share, as well as the podcast I'm going to be doing with you. So I'm going to switch the tables. Next year, I'm doing a series on food insecurity in the UK with three different organizations where we're going to have a chat about what the challenges are, what the listeners can do to get involved and how we tackle this problem head on. Because sometimes I feel a bit guilty because it's quite easy for me to sit here and just say, everyone needs to eat vegetables, everyone needs to have nuts, everyone needs to have beans. But if you can't even afford to feed your family anything there's just so much disparity and it shouldn't be that way so this is something i'm pretty committed to tackling going forward as well and you're one person and i would ask everyone listening honestly just imagine that one night when you went to bed and you were hungry and you didn't have anything in the fridge and you didn't want to go out and that one time when you felt hungry and just think about four million families probably many more after covid that are feeling hungry and it it doesn't take much. I mean, think about it. I was locked down in London and right before the lockdown, everyone every morning will spend a few pounds or many people every morning will spend a few pounds stopping at a Pret-a-Manger or whatever and just picking up something. You're not doing that now. Can you give those away? Maybe you can really, really help. And I think that's uh, maybe a a very good point for us to, to end the conversation. I will tell you, openly in front of the thousands that will hear us. You are such a wonderful human being. I love you so much. You are so dear to my heart. I totally appreciate everything that you do. I totally, totally encourage you and cheer for you to keep doing what you're doing. You're making our lives better. You're a wonderful person in every way, Rupi. I'm really grateful you exist. Honestly, that means so much coming from you. Honestly, you've really touched my heart today. And it's honestly been a dream come true to be able to talk to you like this. And hopefully one day I'll be able to hold you (laughs) and give you a big hug. Hold on, hold on. Big hug and then you cook for me. How about that? Yeah, 100%. Oh, man, I got it. Did you guys hear? I'm being cooked for by the doctor's (laughs) kitchen. There you go. I love you, man. And I'm really, really grateful for your time. I'll see you again soon, I hope. Definitely, definitely. It's been a privilege. (laughs) Stay well, man. Stay happy. I am happy. Happier today that I met you. Thank you so much. See you, man. Bye. I told you, Rupi was a wonderful, wonderful human being. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Do tell me if you like the idea of recording slow-mo on Instagram live. I think it's quite uh, real and lively and we read the comments and it's a lot of fun. Let me know and uh, let me know if you'd like to be informed about those live recordings by following me on Instagram. It is mo underscore gaudat. I'm also mo gaudat on LinkedIn, I'm gaudat on Twitter and mo.gaudat.official on Facebook do send me a message. I love receiving your comments and feedback and guest recommendations. And I hope you are continuing despite your busy, busy, busy life 
uh, to find a few moments every now and then to slow down. I love you so much for listening and I will see you next time.